Chapter 17 Hunter What is it about Alex Ryder? The Stormbreaker business may have been the first time we crossed paths, but it seems to me that our lives were like two mirrors placed opposite each other, reflecting endless possibilities. It's strange that when I met his father, Alex hadn't even been born. That was still a few months away. But those months, my time with John Ryder made a huge difference to me. He wasn't even ten years older than me, but from the very start I knew that he had come from a completely different world and that we would never be on the same level. I would always look up to him. We had dinner that night at a restaurant he knew near the Arsenale, a quiet, dark place run by a scowling woman who spoke no English and dressed in black. The food was excellent. Hunter had chosen a booth in the corner, tucked away behind a pillar, somewhere we would not be overheard. I call him that because it was the name he told me to use from the very start. He had good reason to hide his identity. There had been stories written about him in the British press, and there was less chance of my letting it slip out if it never once crossed my lips. He ordered drinks, not alcohol, but a red fruit syrup made from pomegranates called grenadine, which I had never tasted before. He spoke good Italian, though with an accent, and just as I had noted at our first meeting, he had an extraordinary ease about him, that quiet confidence. He was the sort of man you couldn't help liking. Even the elderly owner warmed up a little as she took the order. I want you to tell me about yourself, he said, as the first course, pink slivers of prosciutto ham and chilled melon, was served. I've read your file. I know what's happened to you, but I don't know you. I'm not sure where to start, I said. What was the best present anyone ever gave you? The question surprised me. It was the last thing anyone ma anyone on Malagosto would have asked or have, would have wanted to know. I had to think for a moment. I'm not sure, I said. Maybe it was the bicycle I was given when I was eleven. It was important to me because everyone in the village had one. It put me on the same level as all the other boys and it set me free. I thought again. No, it was this. I slid back the cuff of my jacket. I was still wearing my Pobeda watch. After the loss of my mother's jewels, it was the only part of my old life that had remained with me. In a way, it was quite extraordinary that I still had it, that I hadn't been forced to pawn it in Moscow or had it stolen from me by Ivan at the Dakar. After everything I had been through, it was still working, ticking away and never losing a minute. It was my grandfather's, I explained. He'd given it to my father and my father passed it on to me after he died. I was nine years old. I was very proud that he thought I was ready for it, and now when I look at it, it reminds me of him. Tell me about your grandfather. I don't really remember him. I only knew him when we were in Moscow, and we left when I was two. He only came to Estrov a few times, and he died when I was young. I thought of the wife he had left behind, my grandmother. The last time I had seen her, she had been at the sink peeling potatoes. Almost certainly she would have been standing there when the flames engulfed the house. My father said he was a great man, I recalled. He was there at Stalingrad in 1943. He fought against the Nazis. You admire him for that? Of course. 
What is your favourite food? I wondered if he was being serious. Was he playing psychological games with me, like Dr Steiner? Caviar, I replied. I had tasted it at dinner parties at the Dakar. Vladimir Sharkovsky used to eat mounds of it, washed down with iced vodka. Which shoelace do you tie first? Why are you asking me these questions? I snapped. Are you angry? I didn't deny it. What, ma what does it matter which shoelace I tie first? I said. I glanced briefly at my trainers. My right foot, OK? I'm right-handed. Now are you going to explain exactly what that tells you about who I am? Relax, Cossack. He smiled at me, and although I was still puzzled, I found it difficult to be annoyed with him for very long. Perhaps he was playing with me, but there didn't seem to be anything malicious about it. I waited to hear what he would ask next. Again he took me by surprise. Why do you think you were unable to kill that woman in New York? he asked. You already know, I said. You were in the study when I told Sefton Nye. You said it was because she spoke to you. But I don't think I believe you. Not completely. From what I understand, you could have gunned her down at any time. You could have done it when she turned the corner from the museum. You were certainly close enough to her when you were at Cleopatra's Needle. I couldn't do it then. There were two people running, joggers. I know. I was one of them. What? Don't worry about it, Cossack. Sefton and I asked me to take a look at you, so I was there. We flew here on the same plane. He raised his glass as if he was toasting me and drank. The fact is, you had plenty of opportunities. You know that. You waited until she turned round and talked to you. I think you wanted her to talk to you because it would give you an excuse. I knew, think, you'd already made up your mind. He wasn't exactly accusing me. There was nothing in his face that suggested he was doing anything more than stating the obvious. But I found myself reddening. Although I would never have admitted it to Nye or Dark, it was possible he was right. I won't fail again, I said. I know, he replied, and let's not talk about it any more. You're not being punished. I'm here to try and help. So, tell me about Venice. I haven't had a chance to explore it yet. And I'd be interested to hear what you think about Julia Rothman. Quite a woman, wouldn't you say? The second course arrived a plate of homemade spaghetti with fresh sardines. In my time on Malagosto, I had come to love Italian food and I said so. Hunter smiled, but I got the strange feeling that once again I had said the wrong thing. For the next hour we talked together, avoiding anything to do with Malagosto, my training, Scorpia or anything else. He didn't tell me very much about himself, but he mentioned that he lived in London and I asked him lots of questions about the city, which I had always hoped to visit. The one thing he let slip was that he had been married, although I should have noticed myself. He had a plain gold ring on his fourth finger. He didn't say anything about his wife, and I wondered if he was divorced. The bill arrived. It's time to go back, Hunter said as he counted out the cash. But before we go, I think I should tell you something, Cossack. Scorpia have high hopes for you. They think you have the makings of a first-rate assassin. I don't agree. I would say you have a long way to go before you're ready, and it's possible you never will be. How can you say that? I replied. I was completely thrown. I had enjoyed the evening and thought
thought there was some sort of understanding between the two of us. It was as if he had turned round and slapped me in the face. You hardly know me, I said. You've told me enough. He leant towards me and suddenly he was deadly serious. At that moment I knew that he was dangerous, that I could never relax completely when I was with him. You want to be a contract killer, he asked. Every answer you gave me was wrong. You tie your shoelaces with your right hand. You are right-handed. A successful assassin will be as comfortable shooting with his right hand as with his left. He has to be invisible. He has no habits. Everything he does in his life, right down to the smallest detail, he does differently every time. The moment his enemies learn something about him, the easier it is to find him, to profile him, to trap him. So that means you can't have preferences. Not French food, not Italian food. If you have a favourite meal, a favourite drink, a favourite anything, that gives your enemy ammunition. Cossack is fond of caviar. Do you know how many shops there are in London that sell caviar? How many restaurants that serve it? Not many. The intelligence services may not know their name. They may not know what you look like. But if they discover your tastes, they'll be watching and you'll have made it that much easier for them to find you. You talk to me about your grandfather. Forget him. He's dead, and you have nothing more to do with him. If he's anything to do to you, he's your enemy. Because if the intelligence services can find him, they'll dig him up and take his DNA, and that will lead them to you. Why are you so proud of the fact that he fought against the Nazis? Is it because they're the bad guys? Forget it. You're the bad guy now as bad as any of them. In fact, you're worse, because you have no beliefs. You kill simply because you're paid. And while you're at it, you might as well stop talking about Nazis, communists, fascists, the Ku Klux Klan. As far as you're concerned, you have no politics and every political party is the same. You no longer believe in anything. Cossack, you don't even believe in God. That is the choice you've made. He paused. Why did you blush when I asked you about New York? Because you were right. What else could I say? You showed your feelings to me here at this table. You're embarrassed, so you blush. You got angry when I asked you about your laces and you showed that too. Are you going to cry when you meet your next target? Are you going to tremble when you're interviewed by the police? If you cannot learn to hide your emotions, you might as well give up now. And then there's your watch. I knew he would come to that. I wished now that he hadn't mentioned that I hadn't mentioned it. You are Cossack, the invisible killer. You've been successful in New York, in Paris, in Peru. But the police examined the CCTV footage and what do they see? Somebody was there at all three scenes. And guess what? They were wearing a wash Russian watch, a pobeda. You might as well leave a visiting card next to the body. He shook his head. If you want to be in this business, sentimentality is the last thing you can afford. Trust me, it will kill you. I understand, I said. I'm glad. Did you enjoy the meal? I was about to answer. Then I had second thoughts. Perhaps it's better if I don't tell you, I said. Hunter nodded and got to his feet. Well, you walked it down fast enough. Let's get back to the island. Tomorrow, I want to see you fight. He made me fight like no one else. The next morning at nine o'clock we met in the gymnasium. 
The room was long and narrow, with walls that curved overhead and windows that were too high up to provide a view. When there were monks on the island, this might have been where they took their meals, sitting in silence and contemplation. But since then it had been adapted with arc lights, stadium seating and a fighting area 14 metres square, made up of a tatami mat that offered little comfort when you fell. We were both dressed in karate-ji, the white, loose-fitting tunics and trousers used in karate. Hatsumi Saburo was watching from one of the stands. I could tell that he was not happy. He was sitting with his legs apart, his hands on his knees, almost challenging the new arrival to take him on. Marat and Sam were also there, along with a new student who had just joined us, a young Chinese guy who never spoke a word to me and whose name I never learnt. We walked onto the mat together and stood face to face. Hunter was about three inches taller than me and heavier, more muscular. I knew he would have an advantage over me, both in his physical reach and in the fact that he was more experienced. He began by bowing towards me. The traditional ray, that is the, very, the first thing every combatant learns at karate school. I bowed back. And that was my first mistake. I didn't even see the move. Something slammed into the side of my face and suddenly I was on my back, tasting blood where I had bitten my tongue. Hunter leant over me. What do you think this is, he demanded. You think we're here to play games to be polite to each other? That's your first mistake, Cossack. You shouldn't trust me. Don't trust anyone. He reached out a hand to help me to my feet. I took it, but instead of getting up, I suddenly changed my grip, pulling him towards me and pressing down on his wrist. I'd adapted an injutsu move known as Ura Gyaku, or the inside twist, and it should have brought him spinning onto the mat. I thought I heard a grunt of satisfaction from HS, but it might just as well have been derision, because Hunter had been expecting my move and slammed his knee into my upper arm. If I hadn't let go, he'd have broken it instantly. I rolled aside, just missing a foot strike that whistled past my head. A second later, I was on my feet. The two of us squared up again, both of us taking the number one posture, arms raised, our bodies turned so as to provide the smallest target possible. I learned more in the next 20 minutes that I had than I had in my entire time on Malagosto. No, that's not quite true. With HS and Mr Nye, I had acquired a thorough grounding in judo, karate and ninjutsu. In an incredibly short amount of time, they had taken me all the way from novice to third or fourth queue, which is to say brown or white belt. I would spend the rest of my life building on what they had given me, and they were both far ahead of Hunter when it, when it came to basic martial arts techniques. But he had something they hadn't. As Oliver Dark had told me, Hunter had seen action as a soldier in Africa and Ireland. I would later learn that he had been with the Parachute Regiment, a rapid intervention strike force and one of the toughest outfits in the British Army. He knew how to fight in a way that they didn't. They taught me the rules, but he broke them. In that first fight we had together, he did things that simply shouldn't have worked, but somehow did. Once or twice I glimpsed HS shaking his head in disbelief, watching his own training manual being torn up. I was knocked down countless times, and not once did I see the move coming. Nothing I had been taught seemed to work against him. After 20 minutes, he stepped back and signalled that the fight was over. 
All right, Cossack, that will do for now. He smiled and held out a hand, as if to say, no hard feelings. I reached out and took it, but this time I was ready. Before he could throw me, which of course what he had intended, I twisted round, using his own weight against him. Hunter disappeared over my shoulder and crashed down onto the mat. He had landed on his back but sprang up at once. You're learning. He smiled his approval, then walked away, snatching up a bottle of water. I watched him, grateful that in the very last moment of the fight I had at least done something right and hadn't made a complete fool of myself in front of my teachers. At the same time, it crossed my mind that he might actually have allowed him, allowed me to bring him down, simply to let me say face. I had liked and admired Hunter when I had eaten with him the night before, but now I felt a sort of closeness to him. I was determined not to let him down. We spent a lot of time together over the next few weeks, running, swimming, competing on the assault course, facing each other with more hand-to-hand -hand combat in the gym. He was also training the other recruits, and I know that they felt exactly the same way about him as I did. He was a natural teacher. Whether it was target practice or nighttime scuba diving, he brought out the best in us. Julia Rothman was also an admirer. The two of them had dinner several times when she returned to Venice, although I was never invited. I have to say that I was not very comfortable on Malagosto. It was as if I had left school after taking my exams only to find myself inexplicably back again. Everyone knew that I had failed in New York, and time was moving on. My 19th birthday had come and gone without anyone noticing it, including me. It was time to move on, to stand on my own two feet. So I was very glad when Sefton Nye called me into his office and told me that I would be leaving in a few days. We all agree that the last time was too early, he said, but on the, this occasion you will be travelling with John Ryder. He is taking care of some business for us, and you will be there strictly as his assistant. You will do everything he says. Do you understand? Yes. He had been holding my latest report, all the work of the last five weeks. I watched him as he got up from the desk and slid it into the filing cabinet against the wall. It is very unusual for anyone to be given a second chance in this organisation, he added. He twisted round and suddenly he was gazing at me, his great white eyes challenging me. We can put New York behind us. John Ryder speaks very highly of you and that's what matters. It's good to learn from your mistakes, but I will give you one piece of advice, Yassen. Don't make any more. I could not sleep that night. There was a storm over Venice. No wind or rain, but huge sheets of lightning that flared across the sky, turning the domes and the towers of the city into black cutouts. Winter was approaching, and as I lay in bed, the curtains flapping, I could feel a chill in the air. I was excited about the mission. I was flying all the way to Peru, and if that went well, I would find myself in Paris. But there was something else. John Ryder had told me almost nothing about himself. I was expected to follow him across the world, to obey him without question, and yet the man was a complete mystery to me. Was he a criminal? He might have been in the British Army, but why had he left? How had he find his, found his way into Scorpia? Suddenly I wanted to know more about John Ryder. It didn't seem fair. After all, he'd been given my files. He knew everything about me. How could we travel together when everything was so one-sided? 
How could I ever face him on even terms? I slipped out of bed and got dressed. I'd made a decision without even thinking it through. It was stupid and it might be dangerous, but what was my new life about if it wasn't about taking risks? Nye kept files on everyone in his office. I had seen him lock mine away only a few hours ago. He would also have a file on John Ryder. His office was on the other side of the quadrangle, just a few metres from where I was standing now. Breaking in would be easy. After all, I'd been trained. Everyone was asleep. Nobody saw me as I left the accommodation block and crossed the cloisters of what had once been the monastery. The door to Nye's office wasn't even locked. There were some on the island who would have regarded that as an unforgivable breach of security, and it puzzled me. But I suppose he felt he was safe enough. It would have been impossible to reach Malagosto from the mainland without being detected, and he knew everything about everyone who was here. Who would have even considered breaking in? The lightning flashed silently, and for a brief moment I saw the iron chandelier, the books, the different clocks, the pirate faces, all of them stark white, frozen. It was as if the storm was warning me, urging me to leave while I still could. I felt a pulse of warm air pushing against me. This was madness. I shouldn't be here. But still I was determined. The next day I was leaving with John Ryder. We were going to be together for a week or more and I would feel more comfortable, less unequal, if I knew something of his background. I'll admit that I was curious, but it also made sense. I had been encouraged to learn everything I could about my targets. It seemed only right that I should apply the same rule to a man who was taking me into danger and on whom my life might depend. I went over to the cabinet, the one where Nye had deposited my personal file. I had brought the tools I would need for my bedroom, although examining the lock, I saw it was much more sophisticated than anything I had opened before. Another dazzling burst of lightning. My own shadow seemed to leap over my shoulder. I focused on the lock, testing it with the first pick. And then, with shocking violence, I felt myself seized from behind in a headlock, two fists crossed behind my neck, and although I immediately brought up my hands in a counter-move, reaching out for the wrists, I knew I was too late, and that one sudden wrench would snap my spinal cord, killing me instantly. How could it have happened? I was certain nobody had followed me in. For perhaps three seconds, I stayed where I was, kneeling there, caught in the death grip, waiting for the crack that would be the sound of my own neck breaking. It didn't come. I felt the hands relax. I twisted round. Hunter was standing over me. Cossack, he said. Hunter, what are you doing here? The lightning flickered, but perhaps the worst of the storm had passed. Let's go outside, Hunter said. You don't want to be found in here. We went back out and stood beneath the bell tower. I could feel that strange mixture of hot and cold in the air. We were enclosed by the walls of the monastery. We were alone, but we spoke in low voices. Tell me what you were doing, Hunter said. His face was in shadow, but I could feel his eyes probing me. I had already decided what I was going to say. I couldn't tell the truth. Nye had my file this morning, I said. I wanted to read it. Why? I wanted to know I was ready. After what happened in New York, I didn't want to let you down. And you thought your report would tell you that? 
I nodded. You're an idiot, Cossack. That was what he said, but there was no anger in his voice. If anything, he was amused. I saw you go in and I followed you, he explained. I didn't know who you were. I could have killed you. I didn't hear you, I said. He ignored that. If I didn't think you were ready, I wouldn't be taking you, he said. He thought for a moment. I have a feeling it would be better if neither of us said anything about this little incident. If Sefton Nye knew you'd been creeping about in his study, he might get the wrong idea. I suggest you go back to bed. We've got an early start. The boat's coming tomorrow at seven o'clock. Thanks, Hunter. Don't thank me. Just don't pull a stunt like this again. And he turned away. Turned and walked away. Get some sleep. I was up before sunrise. My gear was packed. I had my passport and credit cards, along with the dollars I'd saved from New York. All my visas had been arranged. There was no one around as I walked down to the edge of the lagoon, my feet crunching on the gravel. For a long time I stood there, watching the sun climb over Venice, different shades of pink, orange and finally blue rippling through the sky. I knew that my training was over and that I would not be coming back to Malagosto, at least not as a student. I thought about Hunter, all the lessons he had taught me. He would be with me very soon, and the two of us were going to travel together. He was going to give me the one thing that I had been unable to find in all my time on the island. I suppose you could call it the killer instinct. It was all I lacked. I trusted him completely. There was something I had to do. I took off my watch, my old pobeda. As I weighed it in my hand, I saw my father giving it to me. I heard his voice. I was just nine years old, so young, still in short trousers, living in the house in Estrov. My grandfather's watch. I held it one last time, then swung my arm and threw it into the lagoon.